welcome to episode 29 of the WASB Connection Podcast. Wisconsin school districts have or will receive almost $2.4 billion in federal COVID relief funds. They're using this one-time money to buy technology, directly respond to the pandemic, and adapt in the long term. The Wisconsin Policy Forum recently released a report offering the first statewide snapshot to how district leaders have used these dollars. This information is useful to school board leaders and policymakers in a few ways. They can reflect on how the money has been spent thus far, compare themselves to neighboring districts, and plan out how to spend the rest of their allocation. We discuss this report with WASB Government Relations Director Dan Rossmiller and Sarah Shaw, the Senior Education and Policy Researcher at the Wisconsin Policy Forum. So the hope is that this snapshot allows policymakers, school board members, community members, district leaders, an opportunity to reflect on where they've spent thus far, which these opportunities for reflection are few and far between when you are in crisis mode in the middle of the pandemic, and apply those reflections to the remaining funds. We'll talk about what this report found, as well as provide some ideas about how districts can use this one-time money to support student learning. And I think that's where professional development is going to be a strategy that many districts will use with the hopes that the skills and learning that teachers acquire through that professional development will be more or less permanent. I started by asking Sarah why she set out to answer this question. Sure. A good question. Anytime we're going to put out a piece, why bother writing this piece in the first place? And in this case, it has to do with anytime there's a large infusion of one-time money, such as these federal relief funds, it's natural that people should want to know where it's going. Some are worried about whether it's going to be used with fiscal responsibility. Some are worried about whether it's being equitably distributed between schools and among students. Some are worried about whether it will make a difference for kids. It's across the spectrum, but a lot of people are interested in knowing what's happening with these taxpayer dollars. We knew that from our vantage point at the forum, we wouldn't be able to answer all of those questions, but we could give a first look at across some basic spending categories, what do we see thus far? And the timing of the report is such that it gives us a snapshot of where the first major round of funding has gone, where part of the second major round of funding has gone, and while there's still a lot left to be claimed out of the third round of funding. So the hope is that this snapshot allows policymakers, school board members, community members, district leaders, an opportunity to reflect on where they've spent thus far, which these opportunities for reflection are few and far between when you are in crisis mode in the middle of the pandemic, and apply those reflections to the remaining funds, being able to think about there are so many things that I or we are trying to balance, do our spending choices thus far, reflect our priorities and those balances, and are there any strategies that we want to change or adjust for the remaining funds to be spent and claimed? Dan, how do you think a school board member or district might look at the data from this report? Why might it be important to them? I think, broadly speaking, the federal money was intended to used for prevention, for preparing for, and for responding to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
I think it's useful for schools to look at what their peers are doing, and people can get ideas from the way that money is being spent in other districts that they may be able to bring back to their own district. And it also, I think, gives them a perspective on uh, you know where they are relative to other districts in terms of how much they've spent, what claims they have made for the, the spending that they've already incurred, and where they may go in the future. As many listeners know, most federal funds were allocated through this Title I formula, and that means that districts with more low-income families receive more funding. Is this a typical way that federal funds are given at the local level, and what was the goal of prioritizing these Title I districts? So, Dan, you, you name exactly the formula that was used to allocate these funds. The Title I formula, which is responsible for distributing a large portion of federal funds every year, was put in place by Congress to use to distribute these new one-time funds. And part of that is a matter of expediency. Congress was trying to get these dollars out the door very quickly to help districts and schools respond to COVID-19 and to use a formula that's already in place speeds that along. It also reflects a choice of priorities and a recognition that students coming from low-income households face more barriers, both generally and during COVID, and benefit from additional resources to help them achieve their full learning potential. And this is a, a great example where we can see the basic principle of equity versus equality in resource allocation, where equality means giving everyone the same thing regardless of their starting point, and equity typically means giving people resources according to their starting need. Um, And the Title I formula, while complicated and imperfect, aimed to be able to get more dollars to those districts serving more families and more students coming from low-income backgrounds. I think that Sarah did a nice job of describing that. There was an emphasis in Congress on directing the money toward those students that were disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. That includes historically underserved groups of students, such as students from low-income families, students of color, students with disabilities, English language learners, children and youth in, in foster care, and others. And Title I is the biggest single federal funding source for local school districts, the other being special education funding that comes from the federal government. It is a method for allocating money that school districts are very familiar with. In this case, it doesn't necessarily have to follow the general rules for spending Title I money. There's a considerable amount of flexibility that districts can use in in how they utilize the money. Talking about how those funds were used now, most of those early funds that were allocated back at the start of the pandemic in 2020, they were likely to be spent on technology and the direct COVID response. Sarah, you found that districts with more low-income students spent more higher percentage, that is, on technology, whereas districts with wealthier families spent more on COVID preparedness. Can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of explain why you think that might have been the case? Let's talk a little bit about those two categories because these are very broad categories of titles. So educational technology could include a whole wealth of things, but some of the example costs would be student laptops, hotspots, instructional software, equipment for teachers to be able to teach while in a remote environment, et cetera. And things related to COVID response might be more of your kind of direct, how do we deal with the fact that we're in a pandemic and are afraid of spreading disease? So things like personal protective equipment or staff training on how to minimize disease spread as a couple of examples. And our main hypothesis for why in this first round of funding, we saw 
districts serving more students from low-income backgrounds, investing in educational technology, was that they may have had less educational technology infrastructure in place at the time of the pandemic to be able to immediately transition to remote learning. So these could be districts where, for many students, the district in-person environment was where they had access to technology and they may not have had access at home. That access could mean not having a device. It could mean not having reliable internet or connectivity. Um, And so districts needed to figure out what do our students need and what do our staff need to be able to remain connected. These districts that were serving more low-income students may also have remained remote for longer than other districts. So our districts that were going back to in-person learning faster may have been pivoting from that first kind of what do we need on educational technology to be connected over to what do we need to be able to bring students back into school. And to do that, you're really thinking about the COVID response such that when we bring students back, we can let them know, let staff know, let families know that they will be safe. So that's our primary hypothesis for why that split happens between types of districts. Although I'll note that those the technology response and COVID response were in the top three categories of spending for districts regardless of type. So this is about different proportions rather than wildly different spending patterns. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that when the pandemic started, which is when the funds could first be um, allocated and spent, all of our schools were closed for in-person instruction. Mm-hmm. So to make the pivot to online education was very important. And it would, I think, make sense to most people that lower income households would be less likely to have equipment in their homes and have reliable internet service on a steady basis than you know higher income families. And given that the money is allocated according to income of the students within a district, it would make sense to me that those districts that received less of the funds through the formula would probably spend more of, of those funds on in-person instruction, cleaning and sanitation, because they were having students back in the building more readily than some other districts. With later federal funding, a new category started to rise to the top, and that was what you called in the report, Sarah, addressing long-term school closure. What's included in this category? That is a very broad category. It's the label that the Department of Public Instruction uses to capture any range of activities or expenditures ranging from instructional materials and curriculum costs to staff professional learning, educators' time, paying salary reimbursements as educators adjusted to new learning environments. As those not in the classroom cannot underestimate how much time and effort went into educators figuring out how to take what they would typically do in an in-person environment and figure out how to do it remote, how to do it hybrid, how to do it back in person, but with dividers and concerns of disease. Sure. All of those various things that might have to do with how do we adjust to a new normal or what really hasn't solidified as a new normal yet and continues to change from day to day, week to week, month to month as districts continue to navigate the ongoing pandemic. So it is a broad category. It was one of the top three spending categories in the first round of funding as well, along with technology and COVID response. But as we see time progressing, it's rising to the top of those three and the top of all categories, whereas something like education technology has now fallen to number three instead of number one. And when we 
spoke with the Department of Public Instruction, they expect to see addressing long-term school closure remain near the top, potentially for the rest of the funds, although you know, none of us have a crystal ball. But their hypothesis is that so many of the different interventions that districts may implement as they try to fulfill a stipulation in the third round of funding that says 20% of those funds must go toward addressing learning loss, student learning loss, that many of the activities that districts would invest in that fulfill that requirement are likely to be contained in this broad addressing long-term school closure category. So we'll, we'll likely see that remain at the top or near the top of the spending amount. Certainly, the disruption that occurred during the pandemic with the initial school closures and then with, in many cases, the kind of off and on nature of in-person instruction means that some students were doing better than others at adapting to that. And it will be necessary in many cases to try special interventions or special uh, services for those students to restore them to where they would have been if school had been uninterrupted and get them back on track to where they ordinarily would be. Sure. And then in addition, I think we're going to be seeing schools intervening in ways that respond to not only the academic needs of students, but also some of their social, emotional, and mental health needs. The central consideration with these funds all along, of course, has been that they're one-time funds. Therefore, the way you spend them has to reflect that. And the way one might think of it is that it's like a bonus, right? If a worker receives a bonus, they shouldn't take out a a big loan because one-time funds usually aren't meant to cover long-time expenses. So I think in the report, Sarah, you describe these easy spending categories like heating and cooling, a good fit for one-time funds. But some of these addressing long-term closures, you described staff costs, and Dan, you just said mental health issues. These aren't easy line items that you could just buy at one time and never, aside from maintenance, not worry about it. So what are some ways, some specific ways that these funds can support student learning, but still kind of reflect the one-time nature of the funds? That is such a good question, Dan, and really reflects what we hear many districts struggling with. It is not intuitive to figure out how to spend one-time funds on effective student learning interventions and support. And that's something we've heard as attention across the entire country, not specific to Wisconsin schools. I think Wisconsin has an additional layer of complexity that we can dig into a little later where there's some pressure to potentially use those one-time funds to help with normal operational costs. Mm -hmm. But when we think about specifically how might a district spend these funds that are one-time to directly support student learning, we don't have a ton of visibility into what's happening right now. The data set that we have from Department of Public Instruction is quite high level, but we have examples of how districts have spent or might spend things like really bulking up and bolstering summer school, after-school programs, tutors, interventionists or intervention periods, really getting creative about how to think about the school day and the school year um, when so much time has been lost. Now, there's always a question of, are you using any additional time that you make effectively? But that can be a first step. And also things like curriculum investments, where if there's a curriculum that is better aligned to accelerating learning or raising the bar for, for what we expect from students and then training teachers on that curriculum, that's a, a critical piece related to professional development that makes implementation much more likely to be successful. Those would all be examples of costs that could be connected 
contained to a defined period of time. But we do see districts that are choosing to open new positions, and they will have to contend with, first of all, can they hire for those positions? Because it's been a tight labor market. But if they are able to, they will then have to contend with, are these positions that we can sustain in the long term? Or are these going to need to be short-term contracts? Or, you know, layoffs are never popular anywhere, and particularly not in education. We, we hear a lot of the strikes contending with, what are ways apart from simply investing in new staff, that we can use these funds. I think that Sarah hit on an interesting topic there with regard to professional development. There are two ways that you can use these funds to bolster your staff. One is potentially by hiring additional staff. Another is by improving or increasing the capacities and skills of your existing staff. And I think that's where professional development is going to be a strategy that many districts will use with the hopes that the skills and learning that teachers acquire through that professional development will be more or less permanent, will be durable, and that that's something that they can take with them into the future and improve their their teaching and learning in their classrooms. I want to talk a little bit about the latest and what may be the final round of federal relief funds. And it's the largest package, I think bigger than all the other ones combined. But as of the publication of your report, very little, less than a percent has been spent. So looking ahead, I read that they must be obligated by September 30th, 2024. Could you talk a little bit about the timeline for spending these funds and what districts have to do by that date? Yeah, and I'll get wonky on your audience for a second to distinguish between what's been obligated, what's been spent, and what's been claimed, which all three words happen to mean different things in this context. So our report found that as of the data that we had from Department of Public Instruction, less than a percent had been claimed. Um, And that means that because these federal funds were distributed on a reimbursement model, less than a percent had been claimed for reimbursement from the Department of Public Instruction. That doesn't necessarily mean that less than a percent has been spent. And in fact, we expect that more than that has been spent and there's simply a lag in when those dollars get submitted and processed for reimbursement. There's also this term of obligate where whether formally or informally, a a district may have set aside funds already and considers them to be taken. Um, So two examples of this that we've heard from multiple districts would be First, that they are undertaking a major construction project or improvement to facilities or capital investments. And those are long-term projects where the money will get spent over time and the full amount really won't be spent until the end. But from a district's perspective, those dollars are already tied up. So that's an example where from the district's perspective, those dollars don't still exist to be spent, but we're not going to see that in the data yet because they haven't been claimed for reimbursement. Another example would be staffing costs. So if a district has hired a cohort of tutors, that's going to be a very steady cost that they incur over the course of this period. But from the data's perspective, we'll only see one chunk of that at a time, while the district has said, well, we've invested here, that money is spoken for. Right. I make those distinctions to help us understand, we do believe that there is still a lot of money out there, but it is difficult to see how much of it is really still available and discretionary for districts. Okay. And that becomes important when district leaders or community members or policymakers are trying to think about how can we or do we need to adjust what we're doing? Are we already committed across the board and now we're just staying the course until we spent all these monies down? 
or are there places where we're really evaluating what we put our bets on and adjusting accordingly? And my personal hope is that there are districts that are really taking the opportunity to do the latter, where they say, you know, we had a lot of tough spending decisions in front of us. Here's where we've chosen to allocate, but we're going to check in at various points over this period before September 30th, 2024, and see are these investments having the impact that we wanted them to have? And if not, taking the invitation to, to shift strategy. So given that districts, Dan, have to spend this money before they get reimbursed, when should districts be looking at kind of thinking about how to spend this latest round? What are you seeing in terms of the timeline for when districts would like to spend or budget these funds? Districts, at least with respect to the ESSER three funds, were required to engage in a stakeholder engagement process to gather input from people in the community. And so they put together their budget and spending plans based on that input. And those were initially due, I believe, March 11th. Every district had to have at least the basic elements of its plan submitted to the DPI. Now, the money did not entirely become available until fairly recently. The last little bit of the ESSER three money wasn't approved by the U.S. Department of Education until May 3rd. That's important for people to know. And as Sarah explained, this is a spend and claim system. So if you're looking for what money will appear in public databases, it's really just the money that's been claimed and then paid back to districts by the DPI after the spending has already occurred. Okay. I think Sarah hit on an important aspect of this is that districts will be able to to readjust their spending plans as they go along. I think up to a certain point, there are some kind of cutoffs to when districts plans must be finalized. And again, there will be a process by which DPI will check the spending of districts against their spending plans and make sure that they're they're tracking. So that's an element that districts will have to consider as they go through this. The other thing that Sarah mentioned is that at least 20% of the money must be addressed toward combating learning loss and must be spent on what are called evidence-based instructional strategies. So there are some kind of guidelines as to what districts have to spend at least a portion of the money on that will help them to guide their thinking. We've seen in the wake of the Texas school shooting an interest in how the federal funds could be used to prevent and respond to violence or to increase public safety. And there is some guidance from the federal government about that. I think districts would be wise not to spend that money on personnel, but more on programs. And we can get into that if you you want to. That would be a longer conversation. But in terms of, you know, going out and using the money to hire a lot of school resource officers or other things, this is one-time money, and those would be likely continuing obligations for the districts. Those will be uh, interesting considerations. Sarah, a moment ago you hinted that Wisconsin's situation is a little different because districts may decide to spend on ongoing expenses more than other states because they haven't received these inflationary budget increases from the state. Could you talk a little bit about more about how our own situation here in Wisconsin might be a little different? So, Dan, you really identify this find that districts in Wisconsin are grappling with that is an additional complication on top of the many factors that districts across the country are grappling with as they figure out what to do with these one-time funds. 
And that stems back to decisions made in the most recent biennial budget, which affects funding for schools for this year, this school year, and the following school year. And essentially, state legislators determined that because there was this influx of federal funds coming in, they could leave these revenue limits flat. And these revenue limits at the state level determine how much state equalization aid and local property taxes a district can access. By leaving those flat, essentially normal operational costs of the district would be expected to remain flat, and then these federal funds could um, address any other costs a district may face. Now, what happened after the biennial budget was passed is that we started seeing record inflation, um, which affects not only the costs that a district incurs for COVID response, but also the normal operational costs. And so now districts find themselves in a position where they may or may not have received a ton of federal aid in the first place. As we discussed, that was distributed according to the percentage of low-income students that a district serves. So that's a variable amount. And they have normal operational costs that are going up. And we have heard from some districts that although it is a tricky decision to make to use one-time funds for normal operational costs that they feel that they have to in order to fill budgetary holes. And they will then have to reckon with what happens if there is no further increase in revenue limits or the combination of state aid and local property taxes in future years. It's a very difficult set of factors to, to try to balance. Yeah, Dan, do you have any thoughts on how that balancing act is going to inform the next final budget session, or are folks not thinking about that quite yet? I know school folks are thinking about that. School leaders are, are very much attuned to that. I don't know whether policymakers and legislators are as attuned to that. Sarah correctly identified one of the significant issues for schools, and that is that not only inflation, which is at levels we haven't seen for probably 40 years, but we also have supply chain issues and we have labor shortages, challenges in many areas that are increasing costs for teachers, for support staff, for everyone from cafeteria workers to janitors to bus drivers and everything else. And so schools are seeing their costs increase in a variety of ways, and yet their ability to spend money from state and local sources has been frozen. It'll be interesting to see what the legislature does when it comes back in January. It will be interesting to see what impact the legislature's actions have on school districts going to referendum to meet their operational costs or in the alternative, cutting programs and staff because they can't afford them. I wanted to wrap up with the question that I think, of course, school board members and others are really going to want to be able to answer, which is some variation of, how is this money spent in a way that, that mattered for students? So far, I think school board members can partially answer that question in terms of the educational technology, the direct COVID response. So looking ahead, how can school board members answer that question of how does this money help students? I love that question, Dan, because I think this communication cycle of here's what we see, here's how we're addressing it, and here's what we get as a result is so often missing from conversations that we'll get a piece of it here or there. Here's what we're planning to spend on. Here's what we spent on. Here's how kids are doing. And it's a communication challenge to stitch that all together, but I think makes for a compelling and coherent story that also reflects the truth when, when board members and district leaders are able to harness it. So in my ideal world, school board members will be able to speak to Here's what we know about how our kids were doing during the pandemic. Because we know this, which 
you know, things we've learned from being community members, from having our own kids, from using various forms of informal and informal assessment data. Because we know all of this, here's what we invested in to try to address our students' needs. And here's how we measured whether or not it was making an impact. And that helps connect the dots for people around you taxpayers gave us this money. We looked at where would that money be best spent. We checked whether it was having the effect that we wanted to have. And as a result, here's what we can show you about where your money went. Again, I think that happens very rarely. And I think it requires a fair amount of work on the part of a district, its leaders, and its school board members to be disciplined in asking, what do we know about what our students need? And how are we tailoring our interventions to match those needs? I'll give just a, a quick example, which is that we've got some data around how math scores across the state were hurting more than reading scores in the most recent round of state assessments. That may not be true in every single district, but one could imagine a district looking at that and looking at its local data and saying, well, that means we should invest more in math. And maybe we want to invest more in math in these specific grade levels or at these specific transition points, because we see that that's where it's going to make the biggest difference for our kids based on what their experience during COVID was. Another example might be a district that saw a lot, a really large decrease in enrollment. One of the funding categories for these federal funds is outreach and service delivery to special populations. So a district might decide to invest in finding those kids. Where did they go? Can we bring them back? What services do they need? But all of those will be specifically tailored or could be specifically tailored to what a district, its leaders, its school board members know about the actual experience of students. So I don't know that we'll actually see that much of a change in the spending categories at a high level across the state. I think as we discussed before, this kind of the general category of addressing long-term school closure, which encompasses so much of just generally addressing the disruptions caused by the pandemic, is likely to stay near the top of the, the funding list or the spending list. But what that looks like from district to district will be and should be quite tailored to what the actual needs of students have been. So you described a big communications challenge in summarizing what districts know, what they did, and what they found out as a result. And Dan, I know that that communications issue with lawmakers and the public is something you've thought about for some time. Do you have any suggestions? I know kind of where we sit in May that one thing you've suggested is to consider candidate forums as a way to educate the public, educate lawmakers, and perform a service. Is that something that you think can kind of help answer some of these questions about how the money was spent? Well, I think so. I think it's important for school leaders to communicate to policymakers what their needs are and how they've met those needs during the pandemic. We're going to have at least 30 new legislators due to retirements. And with new maps and other changes, we likely will see an even greater turnover in the legislature. So there's an opportunity to educate new legislators, those folks that are going to be representing your districts in January, about what are your challenges? What did the pandemic do that specifically impacted students in your district? You know, we know we have achievement gaps. We know that not every student is necessarily achieving to their potential. But layered on top of that, we now have the pandemic, which had its own disruptive effects on learning. Sarah mentioned 
math, I think it makes sense that math scores probably declined a little bit more than reading scores because during the pandemic, I suspect that parents who were able to probably spent some time reading with their children. I think you can imagine it's less likely that they spent the pandemic doing math problems with their children. So math is something that school classes and homework have a big impact on a bigger impact perhaps than reading. So that's an area where I think Sarah's spot on. The ways that schools are providing wraparound services, some of their students probably didn't receive the same kind of medical care, dental care, maybe mental health and nutrition support during the pandemic. Many schools in our state are really understaffed when it comes to nurses, school counselors, and social workers. There may be specific things that they can be doing in those areas to meet the needs of their students. Instructional coaches is an area where school districts may want to see what they can do to make sure that the strategies their teachers are employing are actually combating the learning loss that was that occurred during the pandemic. Tutoring, summer school activities, all of these things are things that may come into play in different districts according to their needs. And I think it's important to kind of bring policymakers in, give them a tour, explain to them what you're doing, why you're doing it. And if you think that your needs will be ongoing beyond the pandemic and beyond the federal money, communicate that as well. I think it's incumbent upon school leaders. We're all in the education business. We should all be working to educate the people who will be making the ultimate decisions about funding and other matters in Madison and Washington as far as that goes. So I really appreciate it. Thanks both of you for your time today. Thank you so much, Dan. And I'd just love to share that the School Boards Association has really been an invaluable partner for the policy forum in terms of appreciating just what districts are grappling with. So my thanks to the organization, both for the opportunity to join you today, but also for the partnership in the past and I'm sure in the future. Thank you for listening. Find a link to the full report from Wisconsin Policy Forum in the show notes. You'll be able to read more about it in the August issue of the Wisconsin School News.